Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Institute Director, Dr. Matt Grossman, and MSU Economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard. Well, gentlemen, we, we've had our national election, and uh, I, I know we, both, we all have been reading and scouring and doing our own research on the takeaways. And uh, why don't we start with you, Matt, for some of the takeaways from uh, the November election? Well, of course, uh, Michigan uh, did uh, go against Donald Trump uh, this time, did swing towards uh, the Democrats, but not by much uh, and not by as much as the polls were expecting. So we again saw uh, a uh, polling error in the same direction in very similar states uh, from 2016. Um, but, of course, with a different uh, electoral result uh, that was mainly driven uh, by uh, uh, white uh, voters with a college degree in the suburbs and in West Michigan uh, and in the, the Traverse City uh, area. Uh, other than that, a lot of people uh, voted the same way. Uh, we uh, take a regular survey of the state's uh, public, the State of the State survey, and a regular survey of Michigan policy insiders uh, who work in and around state government. Uh, and we continue to find pretty big uh, divides uh, between elites and the public, especially on the Republican side, uh, where the uh, Republican base is much more culturally conservative, uh, much uh, more uh, favorable towards uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, they uh, still have uh, uh, views associated with racial resentment and white identity that are that are quite different uh, than the, the political elite. Uh, one uh, stat that I looked up this, this morning from our two surveys is we asked people whether uh, Michigan, or, sorry, whether police officers often use too much force in carrying out their duties, which of course was another big issue in this election. And the public disagrees with that statement, 50% to 27%. So a pretty big uh, divide uh, on an issue that was uh, up, up and center in this uh, last election. And Charlie, what, uh, what appeared to be the big issues? Uh, you know, it, it certainly uh, the economy is usually a, a big issue, uh, but we overlay that with the pandemic. Uh, what, what are we finding as, as the larger issues uh, for this election? Well, Matt, <clears throat> Matt uh, we've, you and Matt have alluded to the coronavirus and uh, racial issues. In my view, the bigger issue in this election was Donald Trump. Um, and that's really often true when uh, somebody is running for a second term as president. The election becomes in substantial part a referendum on do you want this person to continue? And um, what we saw was that uh, Trump once again outperformed the polls. There is a lot of speculation and a lot of study about exactly why that is, that uh, there may be the shy Trump voter, that Trump voters are, are hard to find, harder to find in, in polls. Um, but the other thing that I think is quite interesting is that Republicans outperform Trump. He may have outperformed the polls, but not enough to win the election. And um, uh, Joe Biden's margin in the popular vote uh, was substantially more than Hillary Clinton's margin in the uh, popular vote four years ago. But uh, the, uh, 
the Democratic, the blue wave that some people have been thinking would happen really did not happen. Democrats actually lost uh, uh, seats in the um, House of Representatives. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine, for instance, a, a Republican, um, outpolled Donald Trump in her state by double digits. She won re-election uh, easily. And so what I think is that what we're seeing is that the, the nation, um, and to a, to a substantial extent, Michigan, uh, does not reject every element of the Republican agenda. We have uh, people who are moderate to conservative on many issues, but I think there was at least something of a rejection of the very divisive tone that uh, Donald Trump has brought to the, to the office. Uh, yeah. Charlie's right, polls were off even more overall in House elections and state legislative elections and in Senate elections than they were in the presidential vote. Um, and Donald Trump, uh, people may not remember, but the Republicans actually won the national House vote in 2016 by one point. So Donald Trump actually underperformed the generic Republican margin twice in 2016 and 2020. Uh, this time, uh, it uh, resulted in more gains for Republicans. It looks like what happened is that uh, the new voters that Donald Trump brought in in 2016, who at the time were Trump maybe only or mostly voters uh, who didn't necessarily vote Democrat and um, Republican down the line, this time did vote Republican down the line, including for state legislature. Uh, and the new Biden voters uh, that uh, were previous Trump voters or previous non or third party voters did not necessarily also uh, vote uh, Democrat in other offices. So I think that sort of pattern explains the, the discrepancy uh, this time. Uh, and it is uh, going to be troubling for Democrats moving forward uh, if uh, those if those trends uh, continue, because uh, 20. 22 is already likely to be an election where uh, the party out of the presidency does better. And it would only take uh, a normal presidential slump, midterm slump of a, about one third of the normal size for Republicans to take back over the U.S. House uh, of Representatives. There is no question that uh, both within the state of Michigan and nationally, <laughs> Democrats are doing a lot of hand wringing right now. Uh, they thought for sure that they would gain seats in the U.S. House, they're going to lose seats. They thought they had a great shot at taking over the Senate. That's going to probably remain in Republican control. Going to be very tough to win both seats in the Georgia runoff. Uh, in the State House here in Michigan, the same thing. They thought they had a great shot at winning uh, back enough seats to take over the State House. And I think, Matt, that you've noted across the country, uh, Republicans gained 160 state legislative seats. Is that correct? Well, that's true. And we had these strange patterns where, for example, in New Hampshire, the Republicans regained control of the state House and the state Senate while losing uh, the presidential vote by nearly double digits. And uh, as a whole, you know, moving substantially uh, leftward in the presidential vote um, among all the swing states was the biggest move left. <laughs> and then you get uh, a state vote uh, that that swings the other way. Uh, so uh, we do have to reevaluate 2018 a little bit. It looks like people had come out to vote against Donald Trump, even though he wasn't on the ballot in 2018, and they found other ways. But that did not necessarily carry over to, to 2020, when you could vote against Donald Trump, but, but not necessarily uh, vote for Republicans across the board. We, uh, we saw some uh, strange bedfellows in, in various uh, places, uh, which I think will force uh, both Democrats and Republicans to reevaluate uh, where they go on certain issues in the future. 
Um, the, uh, you can't find a more blue state than California. And there was a ballot initiative to bring back affirmative action in California and it failed, uh, it wasn't even close. Uh, and so the, um, uh, the progressive agenda that uh, the left party of the Democratic Party espouses, it, it, I think they're going to have trouble uh, getting that. Even if uh, both of the Georgia Senate runoffs go to Democrats, which is possible, uh, uh, if that happens, then you've got Vice President-elect Harris to, to break a 50-50 tie. But that is a very precarious majority, especially when you have... Um, Senator Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia, nominally a Democrat, but um, he, he doesn't, he's not going to go far down the line for a stridently pro progressive agenda. Meanwhile, Florida, which voted uh, for Trump, uh, despite polls to the opposite, uh, Florida has uh, passed a, a, a ballot initiative to substantially increase the minimum wage, which doesn't sound like traditional Republican orthodoxy. So uh, I think when you put those things together uh, with the ongoing demographic shifts, we've got real questions that I don't think we yet know the answers to about what will the Republican Party be post-Trump if, if it ever gets to be post-Trump? And um, where will the Democrats go? I think the the um, progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, uh, and the moderate wing have got some uh, some difficult conversations going forward. Yeah, California also um, uh, voted uh, for the the Uber position on the um, on uh, employment law. They voted against uh, a potential increase in commercial property taxes, and that. Um, and that affirmative action initiative was actually the second one. Uh, the one in Washington two years ago also failed and also had overwhelmingly positive uh, spending for repeal and affirmative action. So uh, there does do seem to be limits to that agenda. Um, but there are some liberalizing trends, as Charlie mentions. Not only the minimum wage remains very uh, popular, but drugs uh, continue to move leftward. Uh, we're seeing uh, legalized marijuana in several additional states, plus uh, legalization of of uh, mushrooms uh, and uh, other um, changes in criminal justice policy as well doing uh, moving leftward. So the, the trends aren't all in one direction. But the one um, oddity, I think, is going into the election, we were thinking this diversifying country was going to be hard for Republicans to maintain competition in. And we actually saw racial depolarization it was actually white voters that were more likely to move against uh, Democrats, I'm sorry, against Republicans. Uh, and they uh, either did not lose uh, ground or in some cases gained ground uh, among uh, Hispanic and Asian uh, constituencies, the largest growing in the country. So it will be interesting to look uh, forward to see if the diversifying country does mean uh, uh, move toward Democrats or whether Republicans are able to find ways to compete. Well, let's talk a little bit about moving forward. You both have been in the survey research world for, for many years. Uh, what, and there seem to be a lot of layers yet to be peeled from this onion moving forward. Uh, we had the largest uh, amount of voters uh, across the country in this presidential election uh, and here in Michigan. Um, you you both have talked about and we've noted the, the nuances really in the voting patterns. What do you think this holds for survey research? Uh, what's the importance of survey research to the American public and the parties understanding uh, where people are headed? 
the these arcane what seemingly arcane debates about uh, survey methodology really matter um, if it's the case that there were people who said they were voting for third party but actually voted for for trump uh, that's one thing if we got the turnout wrong that's one thing but if we have systematically been um, underestimating uh, support among republican voters for the last year uh, that that matters for everything else it matters for our estimates of how many people are following covid restrictions it matters for the approval of the governor. Uh, all of those things, if the problem is a sampling bias, which it very well could be, um, and uh, some people being less likely to respond to polls, uh, then it matters for all of our, our other estimates. Uh, even the unemployment rate. Uh, everything depends on getting a, a, a good uh, sample of the, the public when we're, when we're making these determinations. It's a real challenge. And, and you know, uh, the uh, uh, inaccurate polls in my view, can sometimes uh, actually change the outcome of an election. Uh, we, uh, one of the things that we're proud of here at uh, the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research is that our State of the State survey four years ago in the Michigan Democratic presidential primary, um, we saw that uh, it was going to be very close to a dead heat between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. There were some other polls uh, that were widely publicized that showed um, uh, Clinton leading by 15 or 20 points. I personally have heard from several people whom I know who said that in that primary, they decided to switch over into the Republican primary and vote for uh, John Kasich because Hillary Clinton didn't need their vote. Uh, so that if, if enough people did that, that may actually have tipped the balance in the election. So uh, it, Accurate polling is, is important and accurate polling is very difficult because there are a lot of people who are reluctant to respond to surveys. And one, uh, one common pattern uh, is that uh, people who, while who you vote for for president is obviously associated with who you vote for for other offices, um, if you think that one side is going to win the presidency, it actually makes you a little bit more likely to vote for the other side in down-ballot races. So there are a few people who don't like one party to have full control, and they tend to balance their tickets. And so there is evidence that, for example, the fact that everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win last time caused more down-ballot Republican voting last time. And it's probable that that occurred this time as well. A lot of people thought Joe Biden was going to win, and that made them a little bit uh, more reluctant to vote for Democrats across the board. So what will survey researchers uh, like yourselves be looking for uh, in terms of changes uh, moving forward? Uh, this is four years later since, you know, the polls again got it wrong and there's a lot of consternation out there, you know, blah, blah. I mean, what, what, what are the mechanisms? What are the strategies that's moving forward? Well, one thing that I, I, I don't want to, um, uh, has, have a requiem for survey research just yet. Uh, one uh, prominent uh, pollster who I heard said uh, that actually in 2018, a lot of the polls were, were pretty darn close. Uh, there have been two elections in which there was a notable difference, uh, 2016 and 2020. And what do those two have in common? Donald Trump was on the ballot. It's like survey research can get it right when Donald Trump is not on the ballot, but when he is, we have real real uh, real trouble in, in getting it right. So, uh, you know, I think that we'll continue to tweak our methodology, try to find what ways we can to reweight the sample, um, try to find what ways we can to, to, to locate uh, 
certain demographics who are very reluctant to get involved in surveys. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that uh, polls are dead yet. Yeah, the I mean, we shouldn't overstate it. The average error in the polls uh, was a little bit higher than 2016, uh, which was uh, a little bit above average uh, for normal in um, state polls, uh, less than average, less than the average error for national polls. Um, there have been errors. 1980 was a big error. 1996 was a big error. Sometimes it doesn't go in the same uh, direction uh, as uh, as all over the place as it did this time. And sometimes um, it doesn't change the result, so people don't care uh, uh, quite as much. But um, polling errors are, are not that uncommon. Um, I'm not sure I agree completely that it's uh, Donald Trump. Um, the 2018 polls were, were also off in the same places, so the error was less. But um, we saw, for example, the something like people don't care about, like the, the polls in West Virginia that had Joe Manchin winning by 30 points when he won by or so, but that that's the same kind of error. The the white low education voters um, are are non college educated voters are showing up in polls as moving toward the Democrats uh, when in fact they are, if anything, moving toward the Republicans. And that's been true now in three elections in a row. And so there is something um, off there. But the polls did get some things right. So there's a difference between what the polls got wrong and what we just ignored. So for example, the polls did show Latino voters moving towards uh, Republicans in the pre-election polls. And we just sort of ignored that. We just sort of said, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So maybe it won't turn out that way, but it really did. Um, and it also showed that that pattern was uh, more pronounced in Florida in the pre-election polls. So even in Florida, the miss was actually on the low education, the non-college educated white voters, um, which were seen as potentially <clears throat> counteracting that move among So we, we know we've sort of localized the problem, but that doesn't mean it's easy to solve. Two demographic trends are almost certain to continue for the foreseeable future. And one is that um, uh, whites will be a smaller fraction of the American public. And another is that people without a college education will be a smaller fraction of the American public. And uh, if non-college educated whites are, are the most difficult group to, uh, uh, to track, um, they, they are becoming, will continue to become a smaller uh, fraction of the, uh, of the population, but the rate of that change is, is rather slow. It's not like that group is going to disappear. Matt, you mentioned it a bit, and uh, I, I think uh, without further ado, we should jump into the 2022 election. Uh, and uh, you, you discussed and, and, and noted the historical tendencies uh, in midterm elections. Um, layered on that is the fact that Michigan has a independent redistricting commission beginning its work right now to change, uh, change, uh, the lines based on the, the district lines based on the census. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about those historical tendencies and why 20 did this election Democrats were really looking to pad their lead or, or take over, for instance, the Michigan state house? Well, the, the midterm elections tend to go against the party of the president. It's not uh, always the case, but uh, for example, in Michigan, 18 out of the 21, last 21 elections, the party out of power has won the governor's race and gained, states in, gained seats in the state legislature. So it's a, it's a pretty uh, regular uh, pattern. 
Uh, and uh, that's why uh, Democrats uh, were, were needing some, some gains this time uh, to offset those, uh, those likely losses uh, in 2022. How much difference do you think that the redistricting will, will make? It's almost certain to help Democrats, uh, at least some. It should, in that the last lines were drawn by Republicans, although it was a long time ago. And so some of those Republican-oriented seats, like in the uh, Oakland County suburbs, are actually Democrats now. Um, and so uh, the other thing is that Democrats are increasingly concentrated in metropolitan areas, and that's getting worse over time for Democrats. And so it is really hard to draw Democratic seats that are not 80 85% Democratic, instead of 60-65%. And that means that if anybody's paying attention to the uh, local uh, lines, uh, then it's, uh, it's still likely that Republicans are going to have an, a, a geographic advantage in these elections. Right. In, a, in some of the European countries, they have uh, proportion, proportional voting schemes such that geography doesn't matter. Uh, but in, in the UK and in the United States, we have geographically defined districts. And that first gives the possibility of gerrymandering if it's allowed, which it has been allowed in the past in Michigan, but not in the future. But it also gives an advantage to any political party whose voters are geographically dispersed. And nationally, uh, all across, in, in most of the United States, uh, Republican voters are more dispersed geographically than Democratic voters. And that does, even if you had non-gerrymandered districts, that gives something of, a, of an advantage to Republicans. Right. And it was noted yesterday, even in a forum that our post-election forum that we held with a few folks, uh, I think it was Zach Gorchow from, uh, from Gangwer noted the, um, the uh, demographic differences occurring in Southwest Michigan, uh, in Kalamazoo County and in Calhoun County in, in, in particular. And I do think uh, Charlie and Matt have touched upon something. There's only so much even an independent redistricting commission can do to create more, quote, 50-50 districts. Um, because that was, you know, at the end of the day, the idea behind an independent commission drawing the lines was that the political parties would not be involved. Therefore, you would have more of an opportunity to create the kind of districts where you mixed in Republicans and Democrats alike to as large a percentage as possible uh, to create uh, more moderate seats, basically. So you would move people to the middle. But as Matt noted, uh, and Charlie has noted, uh, what's happening across the country and here in Michigan too, is that Democrats are concentrating in urban metropolitan areas. So urban and inner ring suburbs and in this election, a bit more in the exurbs, because it's pretty clear when you look at, in Michigan, Western Wayne County and Oakland County, those suburban, uh, Metro Detroit suburban communities, Troy, Novi, many of them, that used to be solid Republican, the demographics have changed such that they now have moved into the Democratic column. Uh, so I'm not sure if there's a way uh, for a redistricting commission to be as successful as they'd like to be. Uh, does that mean you start moving districts uh, such as Western Wayne into Livingston more, uh, or in Oakland County into Out County, Genesee? Um, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see uh, how that work progresses. Uh, Charlie, any thoughts on that? Well, it is, uh, as, 
as you've noted, we have become increasingly segregated. Um, and the, the one that has been so well publicized is the astonishing degree of segregation by race. Um, but um, along with that, uh, we also are observing this kind of increasing segregation by political uh, preference. And if, if you have a highly segregated, a, a population that's highly segregated geographically, as, as Matt said, and as you have said, it's difficult to get um, um, really competitive districts because if, every, if all the Republicans are in one district and all the Democrats are in another district, um, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, districts that are not very competitive. Uh, the unfortunate byproduct of that is that if you don't have a whole lot of districts where it's really competitive and where a, a winner has to appeal to moderates and even to the other party, then you're likely to get a, a, a legislature or a Congress that's uh, at least as polarized as the general public and even maybe more polarized. We, we are actually seeing uh, continued signs that, that moderates do uh, better than those at the ideological extremes in, in general elections. Uh, Charlie, of course, uh, mentioned Susan Collins. Uh, we also had uh, an example where Alyssa Slotkin outperformed uh, her district, which voted for uh, Trump by four points. Um, so there are um, there are continued examples um, that that's true. Um, uh, there's also some positive uh, trends for diversity in the Republican Party. There'll be more Republican women than ever uh, in the U.S. House. Um, all, almost all of the Republicans that won in swing districts were either women or racial minorities. Um, so that is um, that's a, a positive uh, diversifying trend on on the Republican Party, and that also happened in in state legislatures, although not our own. Uh, so. Uh, you know, we, we may see some, some trends. There's even, I think, two pro-choice Republicans that got elected to the U.S. House. So uh, there may be some uh, signs uh, that the parties are starting to recognize that, at least in these swing districts, it's useful to, to put up uh, people who can appeal to the other side. Yeah, it always comes down to, uh, I've always felt, having been in the political arena of my entire career in one way or another, um, candidates. You got to have good candidates that reflect their districts or, uh, and can speak to the issues of, of, of that district and uh, are seen as trustworthy. So it all comes down to candidates. Um, but yeah, you're, you are right, Matt. Uh, more than just Republican women were elected to the U.S. House. There's a great many uh, diverse uh, candidates that were elected uh, by uh, gender and race as well. Um, into the Congress. So it's going to be interesting. We've got going to have a lot to talk about, I think, as we continue to break down uh, the election and as this process moves forward. And uh, we intend to be back here in December, as uh, no doubt by then uh, the electors will have met in the various states, and we might be that much closer to actually affirming uh, Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. Matt and Charlie, any final, any closing thoughts? Follow public health advice. We're uh, in for uh, a lot of trouble in controlling the coronavirus, despite the, the good news ahead on, on vaccines. We're got yes. going to have a, uh, some tough months. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. So stay well, everyone. And uh, always a pleasure to be with you, uh, Charlie and Matt. Uh, that's all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. Uh, my thanks again to Russ White and staff at WKAR for their support of this program. And join us again next month on State of the State.